I uh, was an average student in high school. I have hesitated just how much of this I want to admit because my children are here this morning. But I didn't exactly apply myself. I like to think it was because I was so smart I didn't have to. And I got average grades without really trying. This is totally contradictory to what we tell our kids, that you need to work hard. I found out later on in my academic career that it was absolutely essential to work hard or else failure was an option. I, uh, I will still remember, though, in my high school days, uh, taking a physics course that I was getting my average grades in by really not doing much of anything. And as we approached uh, the latter part of the course, our teacher stressed that in this latter part of the course, historically, many people failed because it was so hard. And for whatever reason, that put the fear in me. And I studied, and I studied like I had never studied before. And like some fairy tale, do you know what happened? I got the highest mark in the class because I studied and I worked hard. This is a rule of life. This is how we often uh, find, you know, truth in the fact that the harder we work, the better the results, right? You know, that's the, and that's like a teacher over here giving amens, right? Because there's some, some measure of truth. The harder we, we apply ourselves and the more we work, generally speaking, the better we'll do with things. This is true in school. It's often true in work. Uh, it would be true of different uh, hobbies and sports, right? As a musician, the harder you practice... The more you practice, the better you get, right? As a, uh, as, as a um, hockey player, you know, you can go and have a lot of fun just showing up and playing the game. But if you want to improve, you've got to practice. You've got to do the drills. You've got to hit the weights. You've got to do all of these things that involve a ton of hard work to improve. And nobody would dis- probably disagree with this general rule or principle, that, that the harder you work, the better the results. Except when it comes to the most important aspect of our lives, which is our relationship with God. And then you'll read Ephesians chapter 2, and, and the Apostle Paul will tell us that our salvation comes only by grace. Only through faith. And there is nothing that we can do to earn it. And you can work as hard as you want, and you will not earn salvation. So we understand that rule. But then you might turn to James, and then you'll read the book of James, and and you'll, you'll read that works are evidence of our faith. And that if you don't see evidence of, of faith through works, then your faith is dead. And so we have this somewhat contradictory idea we have to try to reconcile how the two fit together we have to find a way to hold them in tension and sometimes we just get confused it isn't just about us it isn't about how hard we work but yet somehow our work is 
an outcome of all of this. And, you know, and when it comes to working hard, it isn't just about how much effort you put in. If we go back to my physics test, you know, if I had grabbed my chemistry textbook and studied just as hard, what would have happened? Right? I would have done better in chemistry. That's another story for another day, by the way. But, you know, I wouldn't have done very well in my physics, right? If I, if I were a golfer and I wanted to improve my golf game, well, I could spend hundreds of hours practicing a tennis serve. And that isn't going to help my golf game, right? So with all these examples, you know, as, as, as overly simplistic as they are, I hope that they help to kind of focus our thought. It's, it's not just what you do, but it's, somehow it's also where you focus your attention and where you put your effort. And... These were the thoughts that were rattling around in my head when I was reading John chapter 15. And John chapter 15 is a very familiar passage, and it's been taught on here before. We uh, are all likely familiar with it. And one of the reasons why I think a passage like John 15 is so valuable for us as believers is because it comes in a part of Jesus' ministry where he is approaching the cross, and he has taken his disciples Aside, right? He is spending private time with them and he is getting a lot more direct and a lot more clear about what he wants them to understand. And when Jesus was speaking to the multitudes and to the crowds, he would use things like parables and he would tell these stories that required people to work a little bit harder to get the idea of what he was saying because he wanted people who were serious about understanding the truth that were willing to work for it, and he wanted to separate them maybe from the people who were just hanging around for a free lunch. So the teaching maybe wasn't always quite as clear. But now, as Jesus is gathered with his disciples and time is getting short, he is getting increasingly clear and direct. And in this particular passage, he doesn't use a parable. When he talks about the vine and the branches, it isn't a story. It's an extended metaphor. And he wants to be very clear with his disciples. So he uses this analogy, this this example of vines and branches. Of course, something that the disciples would have been very familiar with in their culture. Vineyards and vines were all things that they knew about. They were part of their day-to-day life. Some of you have probably toured a vineyard You've been, been around vines, and you would understand a little bit about what vines are like because of that. For the rest of us, it doesn't exactly take any expertise to understand the basic principle. I think I've mentioned before about the crabapple tree that we have in our backyard. And for the past several years, it has produced more fruit than we could possibly use or give away. It is just loaded year after year. It's been very productive. And if I were to take a handsaw this afternoon and go and find the most productive branch on that tree and cut it off. Now, once I had removed that branch, it wouldn't matter if I laid the branch next to the tree. It wouldn't matter if I leaned it against the tree. It wouldn't matter if I hung it from some other branches. 
The fact is, is that later in the spring, as that tree flowers and blossoms, and throughout the summer, as the fruit grows on that tree, it's not going to change what happens to that other branch, is it? That branch is going to wither. It is going to die. And it will be no good for anything except firewood. And that is the most basic part of this analogy that Jesus is giving. That when the branch is separated from the vine, it's no longer producing fruit. It's, it's useless. So as I read John chapter 15, I think about all these different questions. What, what does it mean to produce fruit? What, 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 what is Jesus saying about these branches? Is he talking about eternal punishment when these dead branches are gathered? There's all of these good questions that come to mind as I read the verses of John chapter 15. But, you know, I think there is one very fundamental question that is more important than any other for a Christian. If we consider ourselves to be a follower of Christ, the one question that we need to ask above all others that, that should just take the primary focus for our lives is, how do I remain in Christ? And if I know the answer to that question, then I have time perhaps to consider the other ones. But I think that most of them would be not as productive as understanding what it means to remain in Christ. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The analogy of the vine, by the way, is very significant in another way culturally for the disciples. Because in Judaism, Israel was often represented by a vine. And when Jesus uses this analogy, placing himself as the true vine, he's calling himself the vine, not the nation of Israel, but himself, right? Not a rejection of Judaism, but a fulfillment. He's, again, identifying his identity, who he is as Messiah. He is the true vine. That... The disciples need to root themselves in, and we need to root ourselves in. So how do we remain rooted? Fortunately, as I said earlier, Jesus is very clear here. Very clear about what, it, what, is, what he's trying to say. He's not hiding his truth at all. And Jesus talks about love. And it's right after Valentine's Day. Right? The day of the year when we celebrate love. But what you and I know about love in our culture is that some of, the, some of our culture's ideas of love are very messed up. They're not at all accurate. But when Jesus talks about love, look at how he speaks of love. Right? He loves us the way the Father has loved him. So what does Jesus do when he talks about love? He points to God the Father, the ultimate source of love. If you want to understand what love truly is, you've got to look to the source. 
You have to look to God, the Father, to understand love. And this is what Jesus models and what he's teaching the disciples right now is the example that he sets is the example that's given to him by God. Remain in my love, he says. Okay, so if we want to remain in him, we need to remain in his love. Makes it very clear. What does it mean to remain in his love? He takes us one step further. We need to obey his commandments. As he obeys the Father, we need to obey him. Jesus, again, modeling obedience. Oh, wait a second. (laughs) The word obedience. Uh, Anybody not like the word obedience? It's one of those words that can really chafe at people. Oh, being obedient sounds so restrictive. It sounds unpleasant. It sounds um, like it takes away fulfillment and joy and, and, and we just got to obey. And it just sounds so dreary and it's not at all pleasant for some people. And yet Jesus says our joy could be made complete in obedience by following his example of obedience. And you'll note that Jesus doesn't say obedience is always easy. I mean, Jesus knows what's coming for him personally. And yet, he talks about joy in obedience. What is that, you know, that's, in some ways, does that even compute? Well, again, it's just like looking to God the Father as the source of love. We need to remember that God is the source of joy. God is the source of fulfillment. And the only way that we experience true joy and true fulfillment is in our relationship with him. There's no, everything else is counterfeit. And, and, and that comes back to the expressions of love that we see in our culture sometimes. Counterfeit. Not authentic, not real. Not rooted in God. And what happens when we, we try to find our, our, our joy and our fulfillment in those things? Money, drugs, sex, work, even good things like family. If that is our primary source of joy and fulfillment, they leave us wanting, right? They leave, they're incomplete. And you see this, sometimes you see it with incredibly destructive outcomes when people try to find joy and fulfillment in these areas and and they they try harder and harder and they try more and more and it never satisfies. And perhaps you've walked that path yourselves at times and certainly you know people that you've seen who have have really messed their lives up trying to find fulfillment in, in things that don't ultimately satisfy. But yet Jesus says, in obedience... There's actually joy and fulfillment. It's amazing, but it's true. If you've walked that path, you begin to realize that your fulfillment that comes from walking in obedience. And, and so, to remain in Christ is to obey his commands. To be obedient. 
But this is where we have to be very careful, right? Because it isn't simply about following the rules and obeying. The best analogy I can think of would be to think of of parents who are incredibly wealthy and imagine them with two children. And the one child doesn't love his parents, but he wants their inheritance. So he is obedient. Not out of love, but he wants to make sure that he gets his inheritance. And then you take another child who loves the parents. Not for their inheritance, but he absolutely loves them. So that child is obedient because of his love for his parents. And if you were to look at both of those children in the way they act, they're going to look somewhat similar, right? Their behaviors on the outside are going to appear the same. But if you were able to look at their hearts, you would see this tremendous difference between the child who is obedient out of love and the child is, is, is obedient just for what they're going to get. And I think that that is an example that we could look to of how it is in our obedience to God. If our obedience is rooted in our love for God, if it is our love and desire to to be in relationship with God that motivates our obedience, then we're going to exemplify the kind of things that James talks about when he talks about the good works that evidence our faith. But if you think that you can do a lot of good works and earn God's favor, then you're in serious danger. Because the Apostle Paul, again, in Ephesians 2, makes it clear that that is not the way that it works. That it's only by grace that we can be saved. So how we focus our efforts is very important. There's something else that Jesus kind of notes too that, that may have stood out to a few people when you, when you read those verses. And Jesus talks about prayer and prayer being answered. And I just have to mention it because I think it would be one of those things that would be, you know, it, it just hangs out there a little bit. What, what, what is this idea of prayers that seem to always get answered? A lot of us are thinking, man, my prayers don't always get answered. I don't understand. And it has a lot to do with this idea of obedience because as we grow in our relationship with God, our will becomes conformed to his will. The closer we are to him, the more like his will our will is. And when we start praying for things that are in alignment with his will, guess what? Those are the prayers that get answered. Living in obedience. And then Jesus gives this one commandment. And it's important to pay attention to this because Jesus doesn't give a lot of commandments. There's a relatively short list of things that Jesus says that we should do. And Jesus gives us this commandment that we need to love one another following his example. Love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment, that you love one another. What does that look like? Jesus sets an example 
And he even says, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for one another. What does that mean? What does that look like? I believe that fundamentally it has a lot to do with looking to others instead of ourselves. You see, we know that the love that Jesus is talking about is not an emotion. If, if we were talking about some sort of a, a feeling, it would be impossible. You look around this room, the commandment for you and for me as followers of Christ is to love one another. And you look around here this morning and you think, love? I don't even know if I like that person. But I'm commanded to love them. It is not a feeling. It's an action that we are commanded to. To lay down our lives. To give up ourselves. To stop thinking about me and what I want and maybe think about that other person. What does it look like? Well, maybe it looks like joining a small group. Maybe it looks like becoming one of, part of one of our care groups and giving up that night, that evening, that <laughs> you didn't really want to give up, did you? <laughs> didn't really want to give up and hang out with the people that you're like, I don't know, I don't have that much in common with them. That I have to you know, go through the awkwardness of getting to know them and spending time with them and, and, and you know, living life with them. Why? Because Jesus commanded it? But let me tell you, we have a small group where we, we get together and, and we've, we've, we've you know, gone through the stages of, of early stages you know, before now where, where a lot of that stuff's passed and, and it's a place where we begin to experience joy as, we're, as we spend time together. And... and are able to be you know, part of each other's lives and encouraging each other and loving one another. That's, that's one expression. What else does it look like? Oh, it could get tough. Do you have one thing? Just think about it, some of you. Do you have the one thing that maybe like you set money aside for? Like maybe once a month you're like, okay, I've got enough money to uh, buy myself a nice outfit or a pair of shoes or uh, go out for dinner, or maybe it's the amount of money I spend every month on that cable TV sports package that's just for me, or a new video game, or whatever it is, and that's, that's, it's, it's me, it's mine. <laughs> is it possible that loving somebody means that instead of spending that money on yourself, that you set it aside and spend it on another need that you find in the community here? Laying down my life, my wants, looking to somebody else's. We need to pray and discern, God, what is it that you're calling me to do, to love one another, to lay down my life? Maybe you've got a gift or a talent, something that you're really good at, and you're working on your own projects on the weekend. You're like, you know, renovating or, or doing some work around the house that's, that's, you know, your project for you. Maybe God is calling you to do that for somebody else. to be able to bless other people with the gifts and abilities that you have and your time. That's how you lay down your life, taking away from the time that you would spend doing what you want to do and investing it in somebody else. 
That's what it can look like to lay down our lives. To obey God's commandment to love one another. You see how I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg there? Like, you could... You need to make that a matter of prayer between you and God to ask God, what is it that you want me to do to lay down my life, to love others, to follow that commandment? And think about how that looks. Think about how that looks to people from the outside. Maybe maybe part of it is next Sunday for the YMCA marathon. Instead of going home and having a nice lunch and putting your feet up like you plan to do because that's really what I want to do, you go outside and no matter how nice or not nice the weather is, you, you serve alongside the team that's going to provide refreshments to the marathoners. Showing people what it looks like to be part of a community that cares. Because when we do those kind of things, and God, people who come into contact with it, they... they, they you know, people don't understand that. It, it doesn't make sense to them. But, but they know that it's beautiful and it makes people hungry for the truth. It makes people desire to understand what motivates it. It's like breathing fresh air for people. They could come into our fellowship of believers and know that there's something different about us because of the love that we display for one another. And, and wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? And ultimately, as Jesus said, it's the kind of thing that brings honor and glory to God the Father. And, and that is what it is primarily all about, is in our relationship with Him, is bringing honor and glory to His name. And being the good and loving and kind and generous God that he is, he allows us to experience joy and fulfillment as part of the package. Just because that's who he is. Amen? Okay, worship team.